Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode 72 of the Tondal Tindu podcast. And this week, we have a very interesting episode to talk about, particularly one that's like really concerning because it's like really concerning times that we're living in. And joining us to talk about, I guess, the situation in Ukraine, we have Faison. Hey, everyone. And we have Sean. How's it going? Okay, so Sean and Faison, I believe you both are IR majors, correct? Yes. So what do you guys think? Like, how would you describe what's going on in simple terms? Well, I mean, it it started for the past few months or probably, I don't know, how how long do you think it's been, Faison? It's been many months that troops have been building up. It's been about like three months, three, four months. Yeah, three, four months. Putin's been building troops up at the border, angry about what he called aggressive actions by NATO, and then also just angry that Ukraine wants to join NATO. And so basically it culminated him declaring two regions of the east of Ukraine called the Donbass independent. So that would be Donetsk and Luhansk? Yeah, Donetsk and Luhansk. Yeah. And basically he authorized a peacekeeping mission in those two regions, which within a few hours ended up basically ended with air airstrikes across the entire country. So it was just a like a muse to get him get himself into the into Ukraine. Because he spoke about those two particular regions, but his target is actually the whole country. There's a 40 mile long convoy that's literally moving towards Kiev, the capital. And essentially what they want to do is they want to bring back Ukraine to its rightful place, which is within the Russian or the Eastern sphere of influence, right? Because it was like their most valuable, um, most valuable country back when the USSR was still there. And so ever since they had to give it up, they've been searching for a way to bring it back. Yeah, I just say I wouldn't say it's it's their rightful place because so, the Ukrainian, you know, the Ukrainians want to be independent, and want to have their democracy, but Luhansk and Donetsk for years though have been kind of, have been kind of separated from the country on and they're on their own. Don't they speak Russian in those regions? Yeah, and they've been kind of separated out by these by and held by Russian backed separatists for the last few years now, and basically it's just they've essentially been cut off from the rest of the country. But now it's just kind of boiling over into like the conflicts boiling over now. What do you think? What do you think was like the tipping point that sort of like caused Putin to say, "Okay, we're we're entering Ukraine right now"? Honestly, I can't tell you for sure. He nobody thought, at least I didn't think, and a lot of people I've talked to don't think that or didn't think that he was going to be this irrational. Like we knew he was obviously that he's not going to be. Putin's obviously not a good leader, but. We know we thought he was this irrational to go actually into Ukraine and invade a sovereign country because now he's ruined the entire like entire Russian economy, Russian business. He's ruined everything and he's not going to be able to rebuild those ties. Well, well, that's true. I mean, for context, I mean, most of the West and like Europe are just like like putting sanctions on Russia. Like maybe like, I don't know, Faison, Sean, maybe you could describe for our listeners what what those sanctions look like. So essentially what the sanctions look like is firstly, um, a lot of Russian assets have been frozen 
um, especially their financial assets. So the goal is to cut Russia off from the international financial system. And recently, some of their banks, the major Russian banks, were also cut off from SWIFT, which is the like international payment system that allows international trade to happen. So as a result, the ruble fell 30% to the dollar. And there's been a lot of fear in Russia um, that due to these sanctions, especially the financial sanctions, a lot of people are trying to get their money out of banks more than ever before. And so the Russian central bank has actually raised interest rates in order to try and combat this. Um, But then there's also airspace sanctions. So no Russian planes can fly into like the airspace of like a dozen European countries, as well as Canada. Um, And there's also sporting sanctions. So Russian teams, athletes can no longer compete in international tournaments, um, etc. And also Russian oligarchs have all been sanctioned. Um, Yeah, I think there's a wide range of sanctions, actually. I mean, these sanctions have have literally cut Russia off from the entire world in terms of money. Like they can't, most of their major banks can't operate in the international banking market all the way to you basically can't travel out of Russia because all the air, all most countries are blocking the airspace. So you can't fly anywhere in Europe. You can't fly over the Atlantic because they're also blocked. They've basically cut themselves off. Yeah, I think also um, to add, they lost the Nord Stream. Is it the Nord Stream 2 pipeline? Yeah, Nord Stream 2. Um, yeah, which means that their oil and gas supplies. Okay, I know Russia has like a lot of oil and gas supplies, but what they import they're losing all of that essentially. So you're right in the, what they export, yeah, um, my bad. So essentially they're completely cut off from international trade from everything. Well, the weird thing with the Nord Stream 2 is, is that Europe, at least the last I saw which earlier today is that they're still importing Russian oil from the old pipeline. They just aren't activating Nord Stream 2. Because basically, I mean, Europe relies so much on Russian oil that if they if they completely cut it off, their energy prices would soar through the roof and it would cripple their own economies. So they're trying to avoid that in a way. So it's it just that one seems a little bit of a like it's just a weird, complex thing to me. I don't understand as much of the blocking of that if you're still just going to go use the other pipeline to get the same oil. But here's a question for you guys, right? And there's something that really interests me. It's we have all these sanctions in place, right? But most of them are hurting like the average everyday Russians, you know, like people who have nothing to do with this conflict, people who are just living their lives essentially. Some like Putin who has so much wealth and so much um, security, he's just sitting in his dacha and watching the invasion, you know? So, are they actually going to be beneficial in the long run to convince like Putin himself to call it off when he sees his people suffering? Because 
He doesn't care about his people, and they're the ones who are suffering. So, is it actually effective? I mean, the only way that they'll actually be effective, because obviously, like you said, they can't actually target Putin, is if if the people get so angry to the point where they can upright, can rise up against them. The only way Putin will actually take that into effect is if it threatens his power. If the people are suffering, he's he's not going to do anything. It's the only time he'll ever do anything is if the people can be a threat to his power or if it gets to the point where who knows if the military could even turn on if they could get outside information. Obviously, they're basically brainwashing propaganda. But if it starts impacting their families and their livelihoods, you never know what could happen. I mean, at this point, what do you think is like Putin's strategy for doing this? Because I think it it should have been obvious that like, they were going to get sanctioned for doing this. And like, I don't think there's any like contingency plan as to like how they're going to like overcome those sanctions anyways. So like, is this just nothing more than just like an ego boost, I suppose, to sort of like boost his legacy? I mean, I was saying it's kind of what we call performative war, where he's just almost showing, look at all the power, look at the power I have, look what I can do with it. I mean, he he has that underlying goal he kind of wants to put together the old Soviet Union. You can almost see that with Belarus is almost basically a puppet state at this point. Lukashenko just does whatever Putin tells him. But he's there's not terror, like there's no real economic reason for doing it. Even if he does establish control over Ukraine, the Ukrainian people are never going to accept that control and they're going to continuously rebel against it. So it's not like you're going to get anything major from that. It seems to me, at least to me, it just seems like a big show of force. But who knows how it'll play out. Also, one thing that he did not, um, he underestimated is how sort of united the rest of the world was in response to this invasion. Because I certainly did not expect like everyone to be disunited against it, you know? To the point where like the whole of the EU basically for the first time came together to unequivocally um you know condemn this and actually try and do something. So I think he 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 made a few grave miscalculations. Um because obviously like Sean said there's nothing for him in Ukraine except pride, you know. Even if he does get Ukraine, it's not like they're just gonna accept it, you know. I mean, I think what I th- what what I think he thought was that the world would react like they did with Crimea. Like people reacted negatively, but it wasn't this much of a concerted, unified effort by everyone to completely destroy his economy of his country. I mean, he calculated right in the fact that nobody else, like at least up to this point, none of the Western or European and America will will send in actual troops, but. They're arming, they're arming Ukraine, the sanctions. It's more than he thought was going to happen. I mean, like the U.S. sending in troops wouldn't make much sense anyway, considering how anti-war most of like the, the populace is at the moment anyways. And like it wouldn't make economic sense anyway. It wouldn't make much sense, no. But in the past, that's been our thing is there's, an, there's something going on on the other side of the world. We're going to go get involved. So it's good to see us holding off a little bit. I think also it's an election year. For the midterms and so there's a lot more no there's a lot more domestic issues that are have to be addressed like the inflation etc i mean it's easy to see why the us or like at least other countries wouldn't send troops but it's interesting to see because like i think 
I mean, for all like Twitter's flaws, I think it's like a good place to like gauge the reaction of like people who are like actually in Ukraine, like what people are saying. And like, I think at the very start, a lot of people were like calling for like the West to sort of like send in troops and they're like, the West always says they would help, but like, where are they now? But like, it's a lot more complicated than that, no? People, no, I should say that people think it's very easy to send in troops and it is but it's a lot harder to pull troops out once they're in than to actually send them in the first place because what happens after you pull out the troops there's going to be another civil war or something right if the institutions in a country are not strong enough then sending troops will do a lot more harm in the long run like you'll defeat russia and everything what happens next you know yeah, and, this, and also other countries sending in troops would just escalate the conflict even more. Because at this point, then you'd be dragging in half the countries of the world into this conflict when right now it's between two countries. And you don't you don't want to keep dragging more and more and more powers into it. You don't want this to escalate into World War Three, basically. Yeah, and then now you have, now you have Putin readying his nuclear forces, which that's uh, a step nobody's taken in forever let's hope no one takes that that like that option he put the, he put them on alert and then then he's also threatening finland and sweden now because finland sweden also said they want to join uh nato which they had no reason to beforehand but now that they see how how uh how aggressive russia's going to be they're afraid i think a lot of people who listen to this podcast probably might not be aware of what nato might be so like you guys want to like quickly just like explain what NATO is and what it does and why countries want to join NATO? That's exactly what I was just going to say, is for those of our listeners who don't know what NATO is, NATO is basically like an abbreviation for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And this was formed after World War II. In 1948, if I'm not messing up my dates, um, it was formed as a result of the escalating tensions um, in, at the start of the Cold War, whereby all the Western bloc agreed that they would defend each other if one of them was to be attacked by the Soviet Union. So it was like a mutual agreement for like mutual defense. Um, and basically, NATO has grown um, and expanded. And the biggest issue is that everyone believed that after the Cold War, when there would be no East and West conflict, then NATO would sort of die down. That is, that's what Russia and the East thought, that NATO would die down. And they would just be like, um, they very there would be an organization that's um, just in Europe. But the fact that more and more countries in the East, the former Soviet bloc, now wants to join NATO, and the demand today has never been higher, has now made Russia very scared about, um, yeah, about the whole NATO situation, which is one of the reasons for the invasion. Another key little thing to remember, too, is that the EU, it's as itself, isn't a military alliance, and they're not um, required to defend each other within the EU. It's more of an economic alliance. So NATO is almost like cohesive with the EU in a sense that it's the countries that are in NATO 
promise to defend each other and the countries in the EU promise to work economically together. So it's kind of uh, like something some people don't realize that the EU doesn't have to defend. They don't have to defend each other. I mean, it's all well and good having these organizations, but like genuinely, where does the UN fit in this? Because like to my understanding, like you said, NATO is an organization where like if one country is like if one country goes to war, the other countries will step in and defend each other. But like and then the UN is supposed to like was designed to at least avoid war in the first place or at least advocate for peace. And like what could the UN be doing right now? Or is the UN just essentially like they just don't have any power to like there's essentially not much they can do because they're fundamentally broken by the Security Council. And the fact that Russia is one of the five permanent members and they have veto power because Russia vetoed the resolution that was intended to denounce their aggression in Ukraine. But here's the interesting thing. And this has been, I don't know if this has, don't exactly quote me, but I don't know how many times this has been done. But there's this thing in the UN that's called Uniting for Peace Resolutions. And I knew that because we did that in Model UN once in Kenya. And basically a Uniting for Peace Resolution is a resolution whereby the General Assembly, if they vote and they vote past a certain threshold, they can overturn a veto power's veto. And so that would essentially allow them to bypass Russia and pass a Security Council resolution where Russia's veto would no longer work. So they're calling like a special um, assembly of the UN in order to have a uniting for peace resolution. So we'll have to see how that works. See, some of there, you might run into problems because a lot of con- some countries have closer ties with Russia might abstain from that vote. Like, you know, there's some votes that India was abstaining from because they, uh, they get a lot of their military equipment from Russia and they don't want to anger Russia. And then there's, I, if I'm remembering right, China might have abstained. Um, don't quote me on that one. Yeah, I mean, China and Russia are like good friends. I mean, considering there's, there, were, there was like talk at the very start of like, China taking advantage of like Taiwan while every the whole world is focused on Ukraine, you know that sounds a bit sketchy, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, and I wouldn't put it past them over there to do that either. Because it just gives everyone a reason, right? Like, oh, hey, Russia did it, so if nothing happened to them, I mean, essentially, like, still, we haven't seen the full effect of the sanctions and everything, but if they get away with it, um then why not us? I mean, the sanctions will probably like take time for us to like see the full effects of, right? Because like <laughs> they're economic sanctions anyways. Yeah, but once again, I mean, this they're going to hurt the Russian people, the civilians, not necessarily the higher ups in the government. Like the higher ups in the government, they're going to, they're going to be able to hold their power through force. They're not going to lose any of their, well, they're going to lose some of their wealth, but not, not enough to really matter to them they built in the cost like they knew there were going to be sanctions they knew they were going to be losing a lot of this stuff and then essentially putin wants to be remembered as the guy who conquered ukraine and who knows possibly i don't know georgia maybe and who knows who knows what putin's going to do next 
And in within Russia, they've banned people from seeing all the outside news and censored everything else. So they're only seeing the Russian propaganda narrative that Ukraine is this horrible place that needs to be liberated and denazified, as they said. Considering the Ukrainian president is literally Jewish and had family die in the Holocaust, that makes literally no sense. This is, this is literally like, how? How can you even say that that's bordering, um, you know, complete? It's like you're almost, it's, it's, it's very borderline anti-Semitic, you know? Well, not even borderline. I mean, it, it kind is, of is. is. <laughs> or at the but, very least, he's just devaluing, like, the lived experiences of Jewish people at this point. He's just using, like like using the nazis yeah it's just using the nazis as an excuse it doesn't even make any sense it's not even relevant he's just trying to use something that's probably gonna i don't know maybe that'll brainwash the russian people into supporting him at this point we don't know what they think well it brainwashes a lot like russians that don't have an outside like outside context to know what the real like news is when they're only seeing that narrative they actually believe in like believe it because that's the only thing they're hearing is that ukraine is this horrible place that's all like that you know just all the negative things that the russian government's saying and like i know i've i have i watched a couple like russian like youtube guys and basically this one guy he has a lot of um contacts with the outside so he knows what's really going on but he's like basically half the people in my city don't have any contact outside of russia so the only thing they hear is the Russian news. So they don't know anything else. They don't know anything better. They've literally yeah. created echo chambers all, all across Russia. It's actually insane. It's literally like reinforcing um, reinforcing one particular message or narrative causes that to become true in the eyes and ears of the people who hear it to the point that they believe it, you know? And who can even blame them at that point? It's everything they're hearing. And they're censoring everything that refers to conflict as a war. They're censoring out anything that's negative against the government. So people literally are only seeing positive things about the government and propaganda about Ukraine. So what else are they supposed to believe if they have no other no thing, no other connections on the outside? That's the problem. Yeah, it, it is very regrettable. But... On that note, right, let, like, I feel like it's interesting to talk about Ukraine's resistance because I think, I think it's fair to say that we all expected this to like, be over pretty quick because of just the sheer size of the Russian military and whatnot. But like, the fact that Ukraine's still holding out, that's actually really impressive. Yeah, well, I mean, it definitely has a role to play that they they banned all men between the ages of 18 and 60 from leaving the country. And then they also are arming any civilian who wants a weapon with a gun. So basically, he's setting up civilian militias within all the cities and towns. It's actually kind of interesting to think that because, like, you're just giving weapons to whoever wants them. But, I mean, Ukrainians, I mean, you got to admire their spirit. I mean, their president, Zelensky, is like... He's like turning out to like be some kind of icon right now. Like, if anything, like this war has obviously been terrible for the Ukrainians, but like he's come out of this with like really good PR. Oh yeah, and then he was he was also offered by the U.S. to be evacuated from the country, and he said, "No, I don't want to. I don't want to ride. I want ammunition." 
I'm staying here for the fight. That's that's the best quote. That was literally what I was thinking about right now. Is that I mean, you look at people like Ashraf Ghani, who fled Afghanistan as soon as the Taliban got there. And you also look at people like Ted Cruz, who couldn't even stay in his own city when the snowstorm hit. He went to where was it? Um, Cancun. Wherever he went. Cancun, yeah. Yeah, my, my. When you look at him, he's a staying. He's on the streets, rallying up the people. I mean, it's just very admirable, you know, to be honest. Yeah, and then also just for all the normal people to be willing to to get guns and go out and actually put their lives at risk to fight, it's something I could tell you would not be happening here. Oh, no, it would be hard to see that happening here. I mean, you'd have some people be willing to fight, but, like, I think, I don't know. It's just, like, the the conflict of opinion between, like, different parts of the U.S. It's just... Yeah, but you'll, you just wouldn't have this much of a unified movement. That would be that would be that's the difference. You wouldn't have everybody just wanting to do it. Mm, that's true. But then again, well, I guess when you live in a country that's in a more unstable area than here, I mean, well, who's going to attack us? Canada or Mexico? Like, they're, they're, we just not. It's a different mindset, I guess. Mm, no, that's true. And I think that sort of mentality just like, I guess it sort of forces people in those countries to feel like that that siege mentality they feel like they feel that strong need to protect themselves because no one else is going to come and bail them out which is like it's fair to say i mean like i know you said like this conflict's been going on for like two to three months now but like like russia's conflict with ukraine goes way back like i believe in 2014 as well crimea yeah yeah, when they annexed crimea but the thing is too is that over the last three months Yes, there's been a buildup of troops, but nobody actually thought, or most people didn't actually think Putin would actually invade Ukraine. Because he himself said he had no intention, right? He literally said that I'm not going to do it. He's like, well, I lied. Yeah, well, I mean, you can't take anything he says for his word. As like the you, truth. Yeah, yeah, you can't take it as the truth. But just nobody thought he would be that irrational like, unless... He had to realize that he was completely destroying his entire country's reputation by doing it. It's so strange because you would think to do something like this, you would have like some clear strategy behind that. Well, I thought he was, he probably thought it was be more of a pushover. No, but never mind that. I mean, like, yeah, he's invading Ukraine, but like, they're like, they're actually like, the Ukrainians are actually like pushing back. Like, it hasn't been as easy as they would have thought it was. And it's probably even more of a drain of resources than then, even though like the obvious conclusion is like as as much as we hate to say it, like Russia might probably occupy Ukraine at like the rate things are going right now. But at the same time, it's still taking this much out of them. Who knows what's going to happen next at this point? Yeah. And then I wouldn't see the one thing I wouldn't be surprised at is if they don't occupy the entire country, occupy parts of it. Because I, I could see a scenario where if they start getting near the EU border with Poland and Hungary and all of them and Romania, all those countries over there, even Moldova and them, they, they're not going to want Russia right on the EU. So that I, would, I wouldn't be surprised to see the EU sh- like show a sign of force if Russian forces keep kept, crawl, kept creeping into the west of Ukraine. 
I think what's more likely at this point is Russia is going to not, they're going to occupy Ukraine, yes. But their goal is not to have it as like a Russian administered country. They're just going to install a puppet government like Lukashenko in Belarus that's going to serve Moscow, but they themselves are not going to occupy the country after they've put in that government that they want. Because I could see a scenario where Ukraine has like a new government that's subservient to Russia. But even then, I think like with the spirit of like the Ukrainians, you can see now, they're probably not going to let that puppet government last long. Like they're probably going to uprise. Of course not. Yeah, there's there's going to be a lot of uprisings either way. I mean, the conflict is going to go past the actual war itself. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, like you guys both said, there's no way that the Ukrainian people are going to accept anything less than their full independence, full democratic independence, no matter what puppet government or anything they have that's nominally independent, they're not going to take that. And the world wouldn't accept that either. No, definitely not. But I think what's interesting about this whole thing is just like, I think like it's what like, it's like what Faison said, just how united everyone has been against like speaking out against what Russia is doing and like ensuring support to Ukraine. Like it's interesting. It's, it's, I, I don't want to be that person to draw the comparative, but I think it still needs to be said that like with regards to like, like conflicts or like, like, I like say genocides that are happening in like the rest of the world, like you, you didn't really see like a united response from like, like the majority of the world. Like, this time you can see like there's a much more unified response, which is a good thing. But at the same time, it would be like, it would be helpful if you could see a more unified response on other issues. I think part of it is just because the previous history with Russia already annexing part of Ukraine before and now going in to take more of it. Like they were already put on alert and didn't really do that much when Crimea came over. I mean, Russia was fine. After you after they took Crimea, so they kind of yeah that was that was the line. If you if Russia went back in and did anything else, this was the kind of response they were getting. So I think at this point it seem it seems like the world was like I wouldn't say they were ready, but like I think it was like pretty well established. Like like everyone knew Russia crossed the line here. I think it's sort of reminds me going back to like World War Two, where when Germany started like taking Austria, they started taking the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia. Then they took Czechoslovakia. Then they started taking all these um, territories. That was a great tweet once about saying how, like, now we know what social media would have looked like in 39 when Germany took Poland. Mm-hmm. Like the remilitarization of the Rhineland. And then that's when, like, they got the guarantee that the border was invading Poland, you know? If Germany invaded Poland, then war would break out. I think it's like what Sean said, the very same thing with Russia. When they took Crimea, it was made very clear that this is not the limit. You go any further, you're going to see that response. Um, And now they're seeing the response. But yeah, I mean, I just wish the rest of the world had more of a united front and looking at other conflicts and, you know, other genocides elsewhere. 
because it's very easy to pick and choose and turn a blind eye. You need to have the same energy for like other conflicts as well. Because like MLK said, you know, Martin Luther King said, injustice somewhere is injustice everywhere, you know, something like that. It just gets it gets complicated too, and some of those some of those conflicts like genocides are within one country and aren't international, like between two nations, and that's when it gets complicated because of all the laws of sovereignty and all that. That it's harder to go in and intervene with something going on within one single country than it is to react against a conflict that's in like a war one country is impeding upon another. If you look at like history, like Iran and Iraq, I mean, the, those have been like a lot of civil wars within those countries. But we still had like a united front. I think it's also dependent on like the country itself, where it's going on. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the proximity of it to Europe is no question bringing it more attention. And also, I think it's just because like, most of the world has a like united like stance on like what they think of Russia and what is like deemed acceptable. So it's like easier to sort of rally against Russia. Whereas like say the Israel-Palestine conflict, I mean, yes, that should be condemned, but at the same time, like that gets complicated by like, say, I don't know, the US ties to Israel, for example, or like it's just like on certain like issues. Or when you talk about genocides, I think elsewhere, it's like a lot of countries have to like keep their own like views and ties to other countries in account. And that just makes them less vocal about these things. But that's still not like the best solution because even like with this conflict, people, it's like the civilians that are still like at risk is the civilians that are like suffering from all of this. Yeah. And to use the example you said of Israel, it's like with that it's hard, Israel, Palestine, it's harder because the countries are countries are split on who they back on that. It's not like you said with Russia. It's a clear consensus that pretty much the entire world has a negative view of Russia and more specifically of Putin. But with Israel Palestine, it's kind of split. I mean, it's probably a little bit more leaning towards Israel, but I mean, you don't have that consensus of everyone saying one party's right and one party's wrong. Yeah, because depending on like either your views or depending on which country you live in, the stuff you see on like your social media feeds about like people voicing out like support for a certain like regime, it's like it's like almost an even split. Yep. Yeah. And then in this case, I mean, if somebody argues that Putin's a good leader, you're you're not going to believe them and you're going to think they're a little bit crazy. Well, yeah, no, for sure. Or like they probably think you're just like memeing. Yeah, exactly. Like it's 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 such a polarizing thing where it's just there's no way you could argue for Putin's side on this. We really went from wide Putin to this, huh? <laughs> yep. Yeah, we did. I mean, you look at Putin, he got rid of Medvedev. Otherwise, it would just have been like Putin, Medvedev, Putin, Medvedev. So the fact that he consolidated that power that way. Just, it was a warning sign for the world at the very start. But like, they were slow to pick up on that um, at the very start of his presidency. But I think now everyone sees that, you know, Putin is just a strong man and a dictator. Yeah, as much as people want to call him a president, he's not a president. There's no, those elections are not 
they're not real. That's <laughs> just a, so you can claim he's a democratically elected leader and then he modifies the constitution so he can stay in power longer. Like if that's not a clear induction of like what's going on in Russia, I don't know what is. But at this point, right? I mean, it's hard to tell because like things are happening so quickly, but like maybe not in the long term because that's too difficult to think about, but like in like the short term, say like the next few weeks, where do we think this is heading? Okay. Honestly, I think we're just I think we're going to see a slow assault on the bigger cities within Ukraine right now. I mean, we've kind of seen it over the next couple of weeks, but just slowly Russia's going to send a little bit more and more troops in until they can occupy the major cities of the country. And like Faison said, it seems like their goal is to depose Zelensky. So I wouldn't be surprised if the if the basically te- temporary militias they've set up in some of these cities and along with the government forces are, aren't able to hold them off. I wouldn't be surprised to see Zelensky get overthrown. Obviously not without a fight, but... I'm, I'm going to go a little different here because I somehow have hope that there can at least be some peace talks or like some version of a ceasefire, right? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to see the UN... Because we said earlier on in this episode that the UN is basically powerless. But I wouldn't be surprised to see the UN suddenly come out with like a resolution that's really united in its condemnation of Russia. And that would force um, them to get to at least a ceasefire or the negotiating table. Whether there's going to be any successful negotiations is another thing. But I think that in terms of the actual, like, Russia just going all out, occupying Ukraine, I don't, I, that could happen 100%. Because think about it this way, right? Putin is not stupid. He also knows that he cannot keep this war going on forever. Because after some point, those sanctions are going to hurt. So it's not like he has the time for a long war. So I think at some point, he might come to the negotiating table. Yes, the only reason I thought what I thought is when, like, did you see his stuff about a day, a couple day, a day or two ago now that they had, say, had talks in Belarus and they just collapsed? Yeah, we did hear about that. And now the fighting is still like, Going strong. The, the fighting's intensified after those talks. I mean, I feel like at this point, like the only way this is probably going to end is if it's obviously like when Russia decides enough is enough. And at this point, we don't know how hard does Russia need to get hit in order for them to call it a day. Because like you exactly. have all the economic sanctions and all that, and that's like very crippling their economy we can see that like they're they're probably not going to be able to modernize their like army any further but like no. they can but they can probably still achieve their goal of like occupying ukraine or at least like overthrowing the regime in place like you said like i said earlier the only way to actually stop this is to threaten putin's power in some way if his control isn't threatened he's not going to do anything he's not going to stop it and I'm assuming the only way to do that is to get the Russian people against him, which is easier said than which done. Which is almost impossible. Yeah, almost impossible. Because if you think about it, there's another way that I don't know why this is in my head, 
but there's another way that you might come to the negotiating table, which is when he sees his country getting hurt more than what he's gaining from the conflict. Because if he sees like major economic issues, it might cause him to reconsider because he also knows that there's a limit to what you can have your personal wealth. But for your country to be strong, you need a strong economy. And if his economy really starts to hit badly, he might come to the negotiating table. Yeah, I wouldn't put it past it. It's just it's it would have to go really far downhill to get him to do that, which I don't know if I mean, our, the sanctions that we've put on them are very, very strong. but it's going to be weeks until we could see the real effects they're going to have and if it's going to be strong enough or not. It's essentially how fast can they conquer Ukraine? Because the longer this war drags on, the more hard hit their economy gets. So it's like a very delicate balancing game, you know? If let's say it's like at some point in the future, it's like, three, four, five months, they still haven't conquered Ukraine and their economy is really getting hit hard. It might cause Putin to come and negotiate. But if let's say they take over the place, like Sean said, within like two, three, four weeks, you know, it takes weeks, not months. Then definitely, I mean, they're not going to come. There you go, saying too, I wouldn't be surprised if the, if, if the, occupation would be of the eastern part of the country because it seems like cities like Lviv out in the west aren't really seeing much action or meant much aggression at all against them it seems to be mostly focused on eastern cities like Kharkiv Kiev and and Mariupol down in the south a little bit too so it seems like it's less in the west of the country mostly focused on the central and east and like especially obviously especially the capital Kiev mm-hmm. But see, you don't need to go to the West to take control of the country. All you need to control a country is that country's capital city. Once you control the capital, you don't even need to go and fight anywhere else. You can just say we control the government. Well, I think think Putin also is a bit afraid of escalating the conflict by going too far to the West, because by going into the West of the country, you're also going straight at Poland and straight at Romania and straight at those other EU countries that are going to, that could take that as an act of aggression. And I think he wants to provoke these countries that are already angry at him to take military action against him. Yeah. I mean, it would be very interesting to know what's going through his head right now, because obviously he made up some strategy, whether it's going to plan or not. We can't say for certain, we can probably make a guess, but only he knows what he's thinking right now. No, literally a penny for Putin's thoughts. That's what everyone wants to know right now. And we'll never find that out. (laughs) (laughs) We'll never find out what his real plan is. Unless he releases some memoirs or something. Which is probably going to be like highly censored and all that. He's probably like, oh, you got to talk about the best bits. Yeah, you know, these course, ladies of like. I'm sure you could find one that was produced for the Russian for the Russian market that just glorifies life. You know, at this point, I think the best we can just hope for is just a swift end to all of this, regardless of what happens. Because, like these civilians, they they can't keep having their lives uprooted like just yeah, like that. That's true. 
Yeah, and these people in both Ukraine and Russia, they but neither they've done none of them done anything wrong, and they're the ones that are getting hurt by this. You know, like for the Malaysian listeners out there, like this is a really interesting conflict because if like I if like y'all remember in 2014, um, there was a Malaysian Airlines flight, I believe MH17. Like I I remember it was like flying over Ukraine, and it got hit by a Russian missile back then during the conflict and i think of over like 238 people died in that crash so like it's not like it's not like this tension hasn't like like only just started it's been there for a long time and it's affected like lots of people it's not just like you can envision a situation where it doesn't just affect like the ukrainians but like it can affect people in the crossfire as well it's not even mh17 it's also kl007 that was shot down by Russia that was going from like Anchorage to the Dussel. So it's not the first time they've done this. Mm-hmm, that's true. Yeah, it's just been more of an underlying conflict up until now. Now we're actually seeing it flare, flare up, basically boil over. Like, you know, people talk about like World War Three and stuff. I mean, it's not really a joke anymore, is it not? At this point, like, we're seeing how fast things can escalate if you don't like, I don't know, if you don't give it as much credence, I think. What the chain reaction would be, honestly, at this point is if if any of the EU or European countries step in, then America, we would most likely step in on top of that. And then you've got yourself a world war in about two steps. It's not it's not completely out of the question, but that's why I think so many of these European and, uh, and Americas are so apprehensive about this and taking action i think it's also scary because like we've seen this before i mean not like we've seen it before but like how did like previous wars start from like small localized conflicts that just blew up once other nations got involved yeah and the small the small like taking away a little bits and pieces of land is how germany started in the beginning like Faisal said earlier they started taking little little pieces of central europe and the what like other leaders of the allies thought okay well if maybe that'll appease them and they just kept going for more and more so i think that's why there's also such a strong force against it now because we realized in the past that giving a little bit just means they're going to take more so you have to stop it before it get, like before it gets too far i think the moral of this like if there's one thing that i would take away is that standing up for like for what's right and what's the truth actually matters, right? Like we talk about all these concepts as though they're some far off thing, but they're not, you know, you can see for yourself firsthand what happens when people are not willing to negotiate, when people are not willing to give diplomacy a chance. You see how easily things can flare up. And like you said, we joke about it, but it's not a joke any longer because there's a lot of suffering, you know, that that has all because of people's, you know, selfish motives or something. And so I think just the important thing is that you have to be willing to give peace and diplomacy a chance because the alternative is far worse. Yeah, that's part of the problem right now with the UN is that you've got such conflicting views on the Security Council that you can almost never get 
resolutions, like impactful resolutions passed because there's always going to be somebody that will veto it. At this point, I think like with how complicated diplomacy is at the moment, I think it's just like, at least for the people on the ground, the best thing they can do is just continue like to continue standing up to adversity because I guess that's the only way like you're going to get attention. Like even if you're fighting a losing battle, at least like on principle, you still got to stand up for what's right because if you don't, then who else will? No, if you're not willing, if they're not, if they didn't show a force that they were willing to defend their, if the Ukrainians didn't show they were willing to fight for their country, I don't think we would see as much of this pushback as we are from the rest of the world. It's that they're so willing to fight for themselves that people are want to help. I think it's it's all about you know showing solidarity in the face of crisis because you have to fight your own battles and even like no matter how grim the outlook or how hopeless it is you have to believe in a better future you have to believe that you're fighting not just for yourself but for the generations that are going to come after you it's why like even and this is just diverting a bit but it's why climate change also is such a big um thing it's because you're not doing it for yourself you're doing it because you have the hope for the future and that's what keeps you going you know no matter how grim the outlook is or how low your chance of success you have to keep going because if you don't you're never gonna know what what's possible oh no a hundred percent i think i think solidarity is like such a powerful tool at like this time like even if you don't have like you don't have as much influence as the powers to be the least you can do is at least like show that like you empathize with their struggle and at least for like the people fighting out there i mean like hats off to them at least like you're giving a show for like you said they're giving a a good show for themselves and at the very least will at least go down in like annals of history as like standing up for what's right and standing up against their oppressors because at this point what what can you really do i mean it's there's not too much they can at this well i mean obviously there is a lot they can do but internationally there's not too much we other countries can do without escalating this conflict beyond beyond what it is now yeah because like you can for all the talk of like Oh, what if like the U.S. sent in troops or what if like there's enough military power? I mean, like the way diplomacy works and the way like things are like you can't get involved in one in one issue without like escalating another conflict. And that's like a very fine line that everyone has to sort of balance, I suppose. Yeah. And it's not like Russia has good relations to their countries that it could be worked out. Russia already has tense relationships with any countries that would come to help Ukraine. So that would just, it, it wouldn't bode well. It's a very fine line, I think, in terms of like, because like, like we said, I mean, there's not much you can do at this point. But I think you, you have to do whatever you can do, you know. It's no excuse to just like sit up and throw your hands up and say, oh, you know, we've been forsaken by everyone nothing much we can do i think you have to still try and that's what they're doing i mean like the powers that be like 
they are, I guess, like they're doing what they can, or at least like things are playing out that way. But like, I think the message for like just the general, like the, the general public is just like spread awareness, I guess. I mean, like with any big issue, I guess awareness is really the only thing people have the power to like influence. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was one of the things that I was amazed at over the weekend was that, I mean, obviously, you know, me and I'm big football fans. Uh, it was opening weekend throughout the, the MLS over here and a bunch of supporters groups all around here were flying Ukrainian flags of four games or moments, moments of silences here where like the usual team banners were in some of them. Like I was watching a game from Philadelphia and they were placed where all the Philadelphia like team supporters banners would have been with just giant Ukrainian flags. I'm like, it's just, a, it's a show of solidarity. I've, I've never seen across the, this entire country. It was all across Europe. I mean, you saw the scenes of like Zinchenko and Nikolenko just hugging and, you know, just, it was such a touching moment. It shows, it shows that there is still good and there's still the power of good in people when they choose. And that people, when they choose, you know, what unites us is far more than what divides us. People really pull on like, people's divisions and everything. But there's a lot more unity than there is division. I mean, if football is from opposing teams can come together and hug and look at, you know, the bigger picture, we have to look at the bigger picture instead of like the divisions that people try to, you know, sow within us, you know? Because a house of a house divided against itself cannot stand that's what Abe Lincoln said and that's me preparing for Washington DC but point is point is I think unity in the face of division is very powerful yeah and we're really seeing the full effects of that like in the last few days and probably in the in like the days to come like this does not seem like something that's gonna die down really quickly and let's hope it stays that way 100% 100% agree. I mean, it, it will not die down. It's in Ukraine, they're not going to give in. There will, there's no chance that they will give in any, in any situation. Let's just hope that the outcome that, the outcome that happens is the one that is um, right by the Ukrainian people. Oh, yeah, for sure. They're definitely the most important actors in this like whole issue. And like, let's just hope for the best for them. Yep. And with that being said, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Tom Dilton Podcast. If you like this kind of informative content, which we haven't really done much of, please do give us a like, a follow on Spotify, or do reach out to us if there are like more topics like this that you'd like to see us cover in the future. And we hope to see you in the next episode. Goodbye.